You're listening to episode 159 of Sci-Fi TV Rewatch. My name's Dave, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Wayne, as we near the end of our journey down pilot preview path before deciding on a winner. And you got the kids shipped off to camp, though. You got one left, right? Yep, still got one around. That's okay, though. Yeah, we have a daddy day camp uh, for a couple weeks. Okay, well, I I guess that kind of occupies your time a little more than once she goes to camp. Yeah, once she goes to camp, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. Read? Nah, read. (laughs) (laughs) We kidding. Uh, Watch TV, of course. Yeah, yeah. It's just like there's always projects around the house that need to be done. Oh, my God, there's so much out there. But despite the fact that there's a lot out there, tonight we're going to discuss the pilot episode of Stargate SG-1. But as always, before we get to that, we want to remind you we'd love to hear from you via email at scifitvrewatch at gmail.com or at the website where you can leave a voicemail using the Leave Voicemail tab. Record your own audio clip, send the MP3 as an attachment, or just send us a tweet at Sci-Fi TV Rewatch, and we'd encourage you to consider joining the Facebook group and join the discussions there. You know, we've mentioned we plan to cover the entire first season of HBO's take on Michael Crichton's Westworld when it airs in the fall. Uh, Like we said last week, there's still no firm date, but I guess we're getting closer to getting a date. I'm wondering whether it's going to be early October, but... Well, it says October now. Okay. Like the uh, the promos for it that you probably just skip over when you're watching uh, Game of Thrones. But the uh, the promos for it says coming in October. Okay. So they still haven't given us a date. I'm not even sure we know which day of the week it's going to air, but I, we're getting closer. I guess they got to let us know sooner or later. Sure. I, I assume it's going to be you know Sunday, right? The, the big Sunday slot. Well, that's a good point. Since, you know, but I don't know. You're right. We don't know. Yep. Well, next week, we're going to look at TNT's The Librarians, and then after that, we've got a decision to make. So. Yep. All right. Well, speaking of decisions, we mentioned a couple months ago about the Saturn Awards and the nominees. Well, the results are out, and we're certainly not going to go through all of them, but uh, I just want to highlight a few. Special Achievement Awards from the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. The Breakthrough Performance Award was given to Melissa Benoist for Supergirl. And, uh, you know, I know you don't watch it, right? Right. And, and you know, I do watch it. My wife likes it. I like it. It's it's fun. Yeah, she's good at what she does. You know, the, the people she's up against for uh, that award, I, I really couldn't say. But, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly, certainly like that. Now, Television Awards, Best Science Fiction TV Series, Continuum picks up one last award before it, I guess, goes out into the sunset and people have to go back and start doing a rewatch. Uh, best horror TV series. I don't think there's any surprise here. Sure. Walking Dead. Yeah, Walking Dead, yeah. Best fantasy TV series, which I love, and again, my wife loves, Outlander. Best presentation on television, Doctor Who, The Husbands of River Song. That is very good. Yeah. Best superhero adaptation TV series, The Flash. And, you know, obviously we could argue that. I, I like Arrow better than The Flash, but I'm certainly not going to argue that. Well, but... You look at the next category, I'm thinking, well, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, like, hmm. Yeah, good point. You know, like, I, I would, I mean, I like The Flash, don't get me wrong, but I would definitely put those two shows well ahead of uh, The Flash in terms of quality, but, yeah. oh, well. All right, well, speaking of quality, best actor on television, uh, I'm just going to have to take their word for it, and maybe your word, Bruce Campbell, Ash yeah, I, versus I, Evil Dead. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen Ash versus Evil Dead, but, you know, 
So you can't argue with Bruce Campbell. Uh, I'm sorry. Could you repeat that again? <laughs> you can't argue with Bruce Campbell. It's, no, that, oh, not, I not that part. Ash versus Evil Dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it's on freaking stars or Showtime oh, okay. or whatever, you know? Like, no, I got you. All right. Best actress on television, Katrina Balfe, Outlander. And, uh, I mean, that category was just stacked. And I, I could have taken any of them and been happy with that, but but she's certainly a good choice. Best young actor on TV, Chandler Riggs, Walking Dead. I don't know. I I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to just keep my mouth shut because I'm just going to... Yeah, I, oh, that's right. We had that incident. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, into the film awards. Best sci-fi fiction film, Star Wars, The Force Awakens. Yeah. Okay. Does? Good Best call. comic to film, motion picture, Ant-Man. Well, you know, I mean, Ant-Man was really good, but, uh, well, maybe, yeah, it's from this year. Yeah. So, I mean, Deadpool, I think, is a little bit better, but, you know, there's a lot more violent. So maybe that hurt it. All right. Best actor, Harrison Ford, Star Wars, The Force Awakens. Best actress, Charlize Theron, Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. Okay. She was good. Best supporting actor, Adam Driver, Star Wars, Force Awakens. Might be a bit of a stretch, but okay. Supporting actress, Jessica Chastain, Crimson Peak. I haven't seen it. Uh, best director Ridley Scott for The Martian. You know, I've heard a lot of good things about The Martian. That movie's so good. Uh, I just hate Matt Damon so much, but dude, it's that movie's awesome though. It's okay. really good. I was yeah. surprised. I didn't think I was going to like it either, but uh, but actually, my it was my kids who said it was really good. Like my one son had he was at a hockey tournament away, and he came back and said, "Oh yeah, we watched this movie, The Martian. It's really good." It's like, oh. Yeah, well, it's on HBO now, so I'm sure mm-hmm. I'll get around to seeing it at some point. Um, oh, you and, know what else I just saw that's on HBO now? Is uh, Lucy. You oh. saw that, right? Yeah, I saw it. I liked it. It yeah, got terrible reviews, but I liked yeah, I th- it. I, I liked it, though. I thought it was cool. It was good. Good action, you know. Nice. Uh, I like the concept, so I, don't know. I was just throwing that out there. You know, now, in, in the listener feedback category, I wanted to thank Nathan Lace for pointing out that a final cut was released of Stargate SG-1, the episode we're going to talk about tonight, that differs from the original version. And we posted in the Facebook group a link to an article that highlights those differences if anybody's interested. And then Taltos recommended the ABC show Defying Gravity that aired in the summer of 2009. I've never, I've never heard of it. Uh, mm-hmm. I did some research and apparently it was pitched to the network as Grey's Anatomy in Space. And it had one season of 13 episodes. Well, I can tell you what two words would have detracted me from it back then. Yeah, me too. And, and you know, as I've said to you many times and probably on the air somewhat, I'm just really growing disenchanted with shows that focus on the shipping angles. It just seems Wait, that, what? that more and more of the, the fan bases and the fandoms out there are just like obsessed with the shipping angle to the detriment of even paying attention to what the, the main story arcs are doing. So I, I don't know, but, uh, um, we're, we're, we're recording this, right. That can go back and make sure that you actually said that. Yes, I know. <laughs> I, I, I know, I know. So I, I'll just leave it at that. Before no, I, say I got something. you. Yeah, you're right. I, yeah. Cause I'm obviously not, was never really like super huge into the shipping angles in the first place, but, uh, so I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. Well, we're, we're going to get to a little mini discussion of Game of Thrones in a second, but I did want to mention a, a novel that I just read that our, our department head gave us right before the end of school and asked us to read it, uh, see if we think it's worth teaching to the kids. It's called The Age of Miracles by Karen Thompson Walker, and apparently is a, a bestseller. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for a while. I believe it came out in 2012. And the basic premise is that for some reason, and and even the scientists don't really know why, the Earth's rotation has slowed, which then ultimately makes days longer so that we start out adding a few minutes to each day. But then by the end of the novel, a day is 60 hours long. Hmm. So it examines... Some you, might you say could, you could binge a whole series in one day. Then exactly, <laughs> good point. Um, and some would argue that it examines the minutia of a situation like that, and they wouldn't necessarily be wrong. It's told from the perspective of a twelve-year-old girl, though she's older. But unlike, say, To Kill a Mockingbird where the narrator is, of course, Scout and is writing this as as an adult, and the narrative comes across as if it's constructed by an adult, even though she's remembering you know, the, the time when she was six years old to, I guess, around 10. This has a feel that it's a 12-year-old telling the story. Uh, okay. So, you know, good or bad, I'm, I'm not sure. I know you haven't read it yet, and you do have a copy, so I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Did I like it? Yeah, I liked it. For me, I'm not sure there was enough of a payoff at the end, and, and maybe that's just because I'm so used to other types of fiction. I understand what the author's trying to do, and, and she does it well. I just wonder how it's going to translate if we try to get 14- and 15-year-olds to, to read it and yeah, like it. See. I think just from watching uh, Game of Thrones recently, you're expecting all these payoffs and everything now, and uh, you know, I think that's the problem. Yep. All right. Well, speaking of payoffs, Game of Thrones, uh, you you made sure that I remembered it was on, so I, I got to take a look at it last night. I'll, I'll again, I'll let you go ahead and start. Well, I mean, I, I was I was just like floored and flabbergasted, and uh, it was incredible. It's like they they packed. It was you know a little bit longer than normal. It was an hour and fifteen minutes, but they packed a lot of. A lot of stuff into that that time, you know. And it didn't feel like it, yeah. You know, like it was, they were just forcing stuff. It felt like the the flow of the show was, I thought, was really natural and everything. I don't know where to start. Let's start with uh, the the probably I think the biggest reveal with Jon Snow, right? Yeah, sure. You mean about uh, what what happens when he's at the meeting with with the other clan leaders? Well, that was big, but the fact that he is Rhaegar Targaryen's son. And heir to the throne of Westeros. Okay. I would say pretty big reveal. Yeah. You know? Well, but they but- didn't exactly 100% reveal it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I okay. do. Um, and I didn't even realize that that was a thing. I guess it was a thing, the R plus L equals J movement, which I, I had no idea because I don't really read about Game of Thrones outside of you know, outside of the actual show or participating discussions. But I guess there was a, a theory running that, that John was the love child of uh, Rhaegar Targaryen and Lyanna Stark. But that, does, to me, that, that just completely blew me away. Like, I well, was not 
expected that at all. Now, does Sansa not know that? No, Bran's the only one who knows. Okay, so even John doesn't know. Right. Right, okay. Uh, because as I've said many times, I, I watch it, I only watch each episode once, and I'm, uh, as you, I'm even less invested in the show. I love it, don't get me wrong, but, but you know, I, I'm not one of those fans that's going online and reading and, and reading things. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that I loved is that, and, and look, Game of Thrones does this a lot. This was certainly nothing new in this episode, but, but the plot moved in a direction and actions occurred that I think I could rightly say, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. And, and certainly one of them is, is as Jon Snow. And again, he doesn't want to be a leader, right. but, but there's nobody better. And then the, the young girl, I, I forget her name and what whatever little Arya. clan clan she rules. No, no, no. Oh, the girl oh, that the Lee stood Mormont. up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. Lee Mormont. She has just rocketed up the charts. She, I think she might have made the top five favorite characters on Game of Thrones with that episode. Yeah. And what I would love to see, and I, of course, I was going to say I have no way of knowing, nor does anybody else at this point because yeah. the books aren't done. Right. Lo- love to see like a little time jump where we see her, you know, a little bit older, maybe 18, 19, 20 years old, where she's she's more of an adult because, my God, if she's this much of a badass as a 13-year-old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she is fantastic. And that actress is just awesome, you know? <laughs> like, like to be mature enough at so young an age to, to be able to, you know, play a, a part like that is, is pretty incredible. That, that was, uh, yeah, she's, she's, man, she's awesome. Well, and I just loved... Sansa just sitting there next to John at that table while all this is transpiring, not saying anything, not doing anything, but just, you could just see the look on her face, just the pride of of you know being John's. Well, of course she thinks she's his half sister. Right. Apparently that's not going to turn out to be true, yep. and we'll see what ends up happening there. I'm I'm certainly of the camp that she's going to say it doesn't matter. Well, yeah, and well. You're still I mean, my brother. It, yeah, and, and it just—I mean, if what we now know about John, if that that were known, that would only increase his credibility, right? Oh yeah, because he's the heir. He's he's the actual rightful king, even more so than Daenerys. I was reading an article about this. It said because uh, this episode is just so like this is the one time I actually went and read other stuff about it. You know, the guy was saying how basically Daenerys is probably still more capable of ruling, right, than John is. I mean, you know, like John still, he can't really make the hard calls, right? Like Sansa, like, made the call of, of bringing in the army from the Eyrie. Right, sure. Right? Like, if it were up to him, he'd be dead because he would not have treated with Littlefinger and... And they wouldn't have been rescued, and then right. and then sending away the the Red Lady. I mean, granted, like what she did was terrible, but on the other hand, he knows what war is ahead of him when they fight the White Walkers. And as she says, "I can help you. You know, I can help you fight them," and that's absolutely true. But yet he sends her away still. Well, and she also rightly points out that that girl's parents certainly right. stood behind that decision to have yeah. her burn at the stake. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Littlefinger, and the one thing that I thought about after the fact, again, I, I, you said the girl's name, the young girl that stood up at the, at the meeting. Lee Mormont. Right. Littlefinger sitting over there on the corner with this 
I don't know, almost self-satisfied look on his face. Did he manipulate her to do this? Or, or did he engineer just these, all these events? Yes. You know, like it's, it's possible. Because on the one hand, it would seem John rising to power would not necessarily be a good thing for him. So I'm going to, you know, keep, keep that in mind. Now, the other thing that I certainly didn't see coming was what happened with Cersei's aborted trial. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I, I, again, look, none of us are going to put anything past her. We, right. We've seen her in too many situations. And, and I love that scene when she's telling that one guy, you know, that I do these things because I, they make me feel good. Yeah. Right. Well, no, she wasn't I, telling the guy that she was telling the septa. Oh, I'm sorry. Right. 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 That she had, you know, and and uh, yeah, I'm not going to recount them, but that just spoke to her character perfectly. But you know, at the at the court when Marjorie finally realizes something's wrong here. Yeah. You know, and, and she just reasons it out, and and then of course it's too late, and like, oh my god. Yeah. I don't know what that was that they used to. Explode That's the, the wildfire. Oh, remember was... back from the the battle of uh, the battle of Bridgewater, I guess, what, with Tyrion defending King's Landing. Oh, you're Stances. right, right with all the ships. Yep, yep. So yeah, because the old king, and they actually mentioned it, I believe, in the last episode, where you know, oh yeah, because uh, um, what uh, Tyrion had mentioned it to to Daenerys. Because that was the uh, Mad King, Ares Targaryen. His plan was, as the Lannister army was moving in, he had set up wildfire all over the city. He was just going to burn the whole city to the ground um, before Jamie Lannister killed him. So that's, you know, because Jamie killed him to prevent that from happening. Okay. And, and I think I would agree that the debt has been paid. And as we all know, a Lannister, Lannister always pays her debts. Always pays her debts. And yes, you, I mean, you knew something bad because when she was getting dressed, we thought for the trial and she's all in black and you're like, whoa, you know? And then, um, you know, Marjorie's a little bit quicker on the uptake as she said, wait a second, she's not here. We got to get out of here now. But the, uh, you know, the Sparrow, uh, just, he's too arrogant and too self-righteous to uh to even you know fathom that Cersei is a better i mean she's it it all goes back to what she said in season one to ned stark you know when you play the game of thrones you win or you die exactly and right now cersei is just playing it on a different level like marjorie is pretty good you know play pretending to be part of the the sparrows in order to achieve whatever ends she was trying to achieve. Um, you know, she was doing a pretty good job of it for a while, but uh, she just cannot, you cannot play the player. And you cannot. You know, now, now, it'll be interesting to see how Tommen's death plays out. I mean, clearly it affects her. Jamie doesn't know yet, right? Um, oh, no. He yeah, does, he yeah must, because he shows up and she's That's right, because he's standing off to the side. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. When when they're uh, anointing her the queen, so you know, I, I assume next week we'll see the two of them uh, confront each other about the details behind Tommen's death. So I would love uh, to see that next week, but unfortunately, it's going to be a year. Uh, 
Oh, that's right. This was the season finale. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say you got to wait two weeks because I noticed some shows are not going to air next week because I guess the Fourth of July weekend. Yeah. Oh boy, you're right. Yeah. So now, now the last thing I just want to mention, you know, you, you you brought up Daenerys and that scene where again I an, another character who's or I always call him orphan black guy. Uh, oh yeah, uh, Dario Naharis, yeah. right? That is clearly in love with her, and she knows that. And, and despite that, she sends him away. And 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 you know, you mentioned about who's more fit to rule, and I think it's as you said, it, it's clear that she is, and that she is able to make those tough calls, and she is able to put her own happiness second. And of course, that's what she does by sending him away. Well, the thing is, she's, she's not even her own happiness. Cause she's like, I sent away, and I felt nothing. So she knows to, to distance herself from other people and not form personal attachments. Right. But the attachment that she's formed with Tyrion, yeah. wow. I, to me, that was just the most emotional scene mm-hmm. I, I, I've experienced in Game of Thrones in quite a while. And see, and there's the, you know, Really, I mean, the, the the people, when we talk about this Game of Thrones and the people who play it the best, you know, Cersei's probably shot up to number one. You know, Tyrion's probably right after her is, you know, being able to deal with her and be able to play the game. And then, of course, you know, Littlefinger is, is next in line with Sansa learning really quick. Cool. But we got this next generation of kids here with Sansa Stark and um, Daenerys Targaryen who you know, are learning to play the game themselves. And you think about Maureen, really, for for Daenerys, is like kind of like queen training camp, you know? Yeah, Like sure. she's really learning what she needs to do to to play the game and to, to win the game because she's going up against a very formidable uh, enemy in, in Cersei Lannister. And so with Cersei, it's always, like you said, it's what you can't see that you should really be worried about. That's what, that's what Marjorie figures out too late. You know, it's like what's not here is is what we should be worried about, not what we can see. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on to Stargate SG-1, uh, a show that, that had plenty of episodes. We're only going to talk about the pilot, Children of the Gods, parts one and two, written by Jonathan Glasner and Brad Wright, who were the co-creators of the show, directed by Mario Azapardi. And this one aired July 27th, 1997 on Showtime. So we got to keep that in perspective. This show is 19 years old. And, you oh, know, it was on Showtime. It wasn't on. The, okay, that's, that's the thing. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Okay. All right. So, uh, but just when we always talk about production values, and obviously things are much easier to make look good now because of CGI than, than sure. they were in, in 97. But well, they had CGI back then, too. Well, they did, but certainly not to the level that they sure. did, and it was so much more expensive. Right. Well, that's right. one thing watching this. I'm like, man, this show must have costed a fortune to make. Oh, yeah. Just all the special effects and all the extras and all the sets, and man, that, that that's the expensive show we were watching. So, as I'm sure most people know, is based on the 1994 Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin film starring Kurt Russell as Jack O'Neill and James Spader as Daniel Jackson. Uh, film did pretty well, earning $200 million on its $55 million budget. And, and I've, you've seen the film, right? You know, I did, but it's been 
like I don't really remember much of it. Like some of it was coming back to me as I watched this episode. You know, I, I remember I, I liked it, but I couldn't okay. really remember details because I probably saw it like in the theater back in '94. And okay, and, and you know, I've seen it within the last couple years. But uh, it, it, is it necessary that you see the movie? I mean, it makes things a little more understandable at the beginning but you don't have to see the movie right now, and i think if i had gone back and watched the movie i would have understood the emotional attachments a little bit better and the interplay between the characters especially o'neill and uh and uh, jackson but sure. um but yeah otherwise they they really do because again coming from a perspective of not really remembering the movie um you know they did a pretty good job of you know outlining basically what happened uh, in the movie and what you would need to know without having to really go back and replay it all and everything. Yeah. Now, 214 episodes were produced over 10 seasons, 1997 to 2007. But here, here's where uh, you know your, your confusion comes in. Seasons one through five were on Showtime. Seasons six through 10 were on Sci-Fi. Okay. Show, Showtime was ready to bail on the series, and Sci-Fi felt there was still some life, and and of course they picked it up, and it went another five seasons, and only forty three scripted series ever have lasted ten or more seasons. Hmm. Uh, of genre shows, only Smallville and Supernatural. Wait, wait, wait for it, Supernatural <laughs> have made it to ten plus. That's pretty freaking incredible. Yeah. And and not to mention, they spun off Stargate Atlantis. Right. 100 episodes there. Stargate Universe, 40 episodes and 34 webisodes. So it's no surprise that Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin have a film trilogy reboot in the works. And there's been a lot out there. We still don't have any you know, firm dates or actors attached or anything like that. But I'm pretty sure it's, it's going to happen. Wow. I didn't even know that. That's awesome. Yeah. So, all right. Well, listen, not many actors are recognized for two arguably iconic characters, but Richard Dean Anderson as Colonel Jack O'Neill and MacGyver. Yep. That's, that's fairly unusual. I mean, Angus uh, MacGyver. Yeah. Now, Amanda Tapping, who plays Captain Doctor Samantha Carter, also stars as Dr. Helen Magnus in Sanctuary. She's in Supernatural and, and making herself uh, making a name for herself as a director. She directed several episodes yeah, of Continuum. I think she's, I'm pretty sure her character, yeah, she got killed off in Supernatural. Okay. Uh, but even with Helen Magnus, that's not a character that's as recognizable as macgyver by any stretch well, yeah no yeah i mean like sanctuary was a, a heck of a show but definitely does not have anywhere near the popularity that macgyver had yeah oh, it's funny that they, i mean i'm i know you picked up on it that they actually you know at the one point she says you know she's talking about how they were trying to make a machine like that back on earth and she said that they had to macgyver it took us exactly. three years to macgyver this and then they show a quick shot of Richard Dean Anderson kind of rolling his eyes when she said that. So yeah, right. And that, and and of course you know I love that stuff. I mean I yeah. love it every time they do it on Castle with the Firefly references. And you mentioned him rolling his eyes, and I guess what I love about that is that well, is he rolling them because of the MacGyver reference, or is he rolling them because he's got this thing 
about scientists. And, you know, we, we see Dr. Daniel Jackson, played by Michael Shanks, who, did you know he's married to Lexa Doig? I, I knew he was married to someone. I, I couldn't remember because I remember you would, because he was on, was he on Continuum? In episode? Yes. Oh, oh, no, no, no. He wasn't on Continuum. What was he on that we watched? Um, you, you've mentioned him before. Yeah. Well, anyway, but oh, yeah. uh, he, he's in a medical drama now called Saving Hope that, that does pretty well. But, you know, the, the common theme early on, you know, the scientist versus soldier, intellect versus emotion, you know, it, it comes out obviously first and foremost with, with the conflict between uh, Daniel Jackson and Jack O'Neill, right? right. And, and it's left over from their previous mission. I mean, you know, he obviously that Jack has a, you know, kind of grudging respect uh, for Daniel, but also that is sometimes difficult for him to tolerate him, you know. Right. And and part of it, and and you see this a lot, this, this, I don't want to say it never ends in the series, but I'll just say it appears a lot when Jackson or Captain Carter will start explaining something and he'll just go, yeah, whatever. Um, right. <laughs> or, uh, okay, ex- explain it as if everybody already, you know, whatever. But uh, I-, I like that. But the interesting thing, his his fears, his concerns about Jackson in the field are, are warranted. And, and certainly we'll talk about it when when uh, Sheree gets captured and he Jackson just wants to bolt out and, and do something. But then, on the other hand, Jack does virtually the same thing when he sees Scara. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, it's a theme that runs throughout the course of the series. I really like it. They do a, a, do a great job with it. But Samantha Carter, I mean, her character— Also known and, as the second lady of sci-fi. Yeah, and, and obviously <laughs> we've joked about that over the years. But, but I think what's so important in Stargate SG-1 is that her character, Samantha Carter— was really a trailblazer proving that women could be smart and tough. I mean, look, you had people like Gillian Anderson's Dana Scully in the X-Files, and, and certainly she was brilliant, and certainly she was tough. But, Captain Janeway on uh, Star uh, okay. Trek Voyager. Okay, and, but there aren't many of them. True. And, and I don't know what the dates of uh, uh, Janeway's command on, on Star Trek were. but Well, as you're talking, I will find out. Okay, but she took it to another level, and... and Though she certainly could have lorded her strengths and abilities over the men she worked with, <laughs> just you know, she, the only time she really does it is at that first meeting when they're they're explaining the mission and what basically happened. She's ever the diplomat in this episode, and, and that pretty much continues because one, one of the things about her character is she does have to rein in O'Neill once in a while. Yeah. Um, and to me. Much of the show's charm stems from the fact that most of the men that she works with acknowledge that she's superior to them, certainly intellectually. And, and again, you didn't see a lot of her in the field, but as she points out, look, I'm a U.S. Air Force officer. I can handle myself. True. Yeah. So. Well, so uh, uh, Star Trek Voyager started in 2005. Okay. So yeah. that came after this. I mean, 1995. I'm sorry. Oh, 95. Okay, 95, so right. okay, so uh, slightly before, but yeah, we could definitely say that at the time there was certainly a, a a small group of strong leading ladies in science fiction shows. 
Yeah. Now, the other thing that I love is, is that dilemma that she basically creates as to whether she should be addressed as captain or doctor. Right. And then Jackson just refers to her as Captain Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and look, I mean, the reality is whatever situation she's in, if she's talking to another scientist, call me doctor. Right. If she's in the field, call me captain. So again, I, I like that. Now, uh, opening scene, we're at Cheyenne Mountain Complex, which actually exists. It's in Colorado. It is an Air Force base out there. We've got five soldiers playing cards in what anybody that saw the movie instantly recognizes as the gate room. Although the Stargate's covered, presumably it's been out of operation for some time because the one guy says nobody ever comes down here. So we assume this is where they go to to party or whatever, right? right? Just play cards. Yeah, and then the cover starts to sway, the gate goes active, and then suddenly five or six soldiers wearing these Egyptian-looking headpieces come through. And one of them, we assume at the at this point, and, and or and not at this point, but as the episode goes on, the assumption is that this is Ra and that he was not killed the way O'Neill's report said he was. Well, we, we, we obviously- Or if you haven't seen the movie yet, you're just like, what? Right. Well, we obviously get information as the episode goes on that this is not, in fact, Ra, that Ra, we assume, is dead. This is- his arch enemy, Apophis, and you know we'll talk a little bit about him in a second, but we also are first introduced to a character that, as the episode progresses, we'll, we'll know as Teal'c, and for those that don't know, it's spelled capital T-E-A-L apostrophe C, and the thing I love about Google Docs is it recognizes that spelling. <laughs> really? Yeah, it recognizes a lot of the spellings for the characters. I, I love it. Uh, of these soldiers, the Air Force soldiers that are playing cards, it's the woman that basically gets up and investigates, which you know may or may not have been the wise thing to do, but you, you certainly have to admire her bravery. Firefight ensues. She's taken hostage back through the gate, and several of the fellow soldiers are dead. And it, certainly not a cold open, but you know, a, a nice quiet card game evolves into uh, basically mayhem and death. Yeah, yeah, and um, right. He, so it's a, yeah, it's like oh, the the hot blonde is the one who gets grabbed, and everyone else gets killed. You know, right? But he was in search of a female, right? Which we didn't know at the time. All right, right. So, uh, so General Hammond has sent a major to retrieve retired Colonel Jack O'Neill, who's not interested what this guy's selling until he hears about it, the Stargate. And, you know, we see him, he's up on his roof stargazing. And, you know, it's funny. This is probably the third time I've watched this episode because I I did a Stargate, I don't even want to say binge because it took me about a year and a half to get through all yeah, 10 so you seasons. Can't binge this show. That's like, no, it's no, not, no. Right, right. Not physically possible. Right. But I, I think this scene took on a lot more meaning for me as I watched it preparing for the podcast because, you know, it shows that he still has the desire to explore and make a difference, not only in the world, but in the universe. And I'm thinking, well, like, okay, so why retire? Well, is it the death of his son that we hear about a couple of times? Is it, his divorce. I mean, those are certainly possibilities. We don't get any answers, but you know, I find that scene pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, 
obviously it's a show called Stargate, and the first time we see our main character, he's gazing at the stars. So it's you know that's obviously meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. Now we learn that on his last mission, which was obviously in, in the film, he apparently failed to carry out his orders. He was supposed to detonate a nuke to close the Stargate on Abydos, which essentially would have closed the connection to Earth. However, he made the decision to save the innocents on the planet, detonated the nuke in space to take out Ra and his ship, which now if he was a Marine, you'd bring in the, you know, adapt, overcome, whatever the situation that seemed to be. That decision seemed to make a lot more sense than blowing up the Stargate. There's a lot more humane of a decision. Exactly. And, And that's something that comes in to play later in this episode. And and certainly we learn a lot about general Hammond and that, that game of chicken that he plays with Jack was pretty interesting when he's going to send that nuke through the gate. And basically, I mean, that was kind of a small weapon, but the implication was that it was going to destroy everything on the planet. Right. So you're, so you're telling me there's nobody there, right? Captain, Captain (laughs) O'Neill or Colonel O'Neill. Colonel. Yeah. Well, maybe, you know, and then that scene where, where, where Hammond says, look, give me an alternative, right? I don't want to kill these people. And, and of course, he, he does give them the alternative. Uh, we find out that Jackson stayed behind voluntarily in opposition to the news that he had, in fact, been killed on the mission. So he's presumed right. to still be alive. And I, I love how he gets the message, right, Colonel? Uh, General Hammond says, okay, send over to MIT, have the probe sent. He goes, I, I, we don't need that. Yeah. <laughs> Picks up the box of Kleenex, throws it through. <laughs> yeah. That was funny. And again, like, that's probably something that had you seen the movie, you would get, oh, okay, that was, that's an inside joke from, from back then. But they, they also, you, you pick up on that pretty quickly. So it's like, again, the, 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 you know, the skillful way that they kind of get you caught up, uh, whether you've seen the movie or not. Right, right. And and the one thing that, that you have to pick up on right away is that they're, in their mind, and as the ser- series begins, there are really only two Stargates, the one on Earth and the one on Abydos. Right. And the movie begins, like, in, I don't know, 1922 or whatever, where Egyptian archaeologists uncover the Stargate that has been buried here. But, of course, they don't know anything about it, and, and a lot of the movie is is Jackson helping the archaeologists figure out what exactly this, this object is. But in the series, we learn that, no, 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 there are many Stargates out there. And well, sure, you're not going to get 10 seasons out of just one Stargate, man. You <laughs> well, right. But, but, see, that's one of the conflicts that comes up. I mean, what do you do about this situation? I mean, do you figuratively bury your head in the sand by burying the Stargate and cutting off all contact with the rest of the universe or, you know, albeit as small as you thought it was at that point? Or do you figure out some other way to go about it? I mean, you can understand both sides, obviously. Right. And the more progressive approach is the one they take, like, hey, let's use this thing and get out there and explore the universe and try and meet some other cultures and uh, see if they're friendly. 
Right. Well, Jack offers to take a team through to see what's going on. And, uh, you know, he's motivated to go through because he wants to know whether that young boy, Scara, is still alive as well. He, he knows Jackson's alive, but you, we learn about the connection he has with that boy. So he's going to take a team through. Now, the other thing that, that again, it takes a while to figure out, there are seven chevrons, they call them chevrons, that must be encoded in a precise order for the gate to work. Right. So then once we get to Abydos and, and Jackson, you know, we'll have that scene where he shows Jack that room where it's basically, uh, I guess, a directory of other stargates around the universe. All right. So next thing you know, we see O'Neill. He's in uniform, meets with his team. Uh, and this is that scene in the office. He's not too keen on taking someone he doesn't know. And when he finds out that she's a theoretical astrophysicist, now he yeah. definitely doesn't want her on the team. <laughs> right. And he but accuses... she's kind of hot, so that probably, you know, like, could probably play in with his decision-making a little bit as well. Uh, well, yeah, but then O'Neill says, she's just another scientist. And that means she's smarter than you, the general tells yeah. him. And then, of course, everybody laughs. And, and we learn that, you know, not only is she a scientist and an astrophysicist and all that, but she's supposed to be an expert on the gate. And as she tells him later in the, in the episode, she was supposed to go, at least in her mind, on that first mission. And did they not let her go because she's a woman? Probably. No, she you know, was did, probably pretty young, though, too, because how long ago was that mission? Yeah, we don't. Right. I don't think we necessarily know how long it was. Yeah, I, don't I, really I don't think they say. Yeah, but clearly she's got this need to prove herself, and and again, that's not unlike hundreds, thousands of women that would be in that same position she's sure. in. Absolutely. And, and, and breaking into that boys' club is you know, is tough, and you have to deal with all kinds of stuff, like guys who say, you know, assuming that you're not up to the job just because of your your sex. Yeah. You have to, you know, so then how does that motivate her? Does that motivate her to, to obviously, you know, it pushes her, right? Gives her drive. Will that mean also that she is going to be, you know, is she going to either A, feel like she has to be more aggressive around them and everything to prove that, you know, like that, that she's just like a, a, a guy or, you know, I mean, it's 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 a lot of of stuff that that women have to deal with uh, in in a, a number of occupations. Well, yeah, and, and I think that's one of the beauties of how they handle her character in that she doesn't come across that way. If it calls for aggression, she she can dial it up. If it calls for diplomacy, she can dial that up too. And, and so so I mean, her character she grows on you very quickly. And that's why she's the first lady of sci-fi. All right, now, uh, <laughs> moving on. All right, so, the, you know, we mentioned about the dilemma about what to do about the Stargate, burying it won't work, since the other side, Apophis, knows what we've got here on Earth, and he's got the ship. And I love when he says, he doesn't need the Stargate. He can do it the old-fashioned yeah, way. Yeah, like the, the old-fashioned way. <laughs> and, and there is a lot of witty dialogue that comes Predominantly from Richard Dean Anderson's O'Neill character, but uh, she gets some as well. Jackson, not quite as many. In fact, Jackson's most of his lines are setups. 
But I, I love as they're going through, she's sitting there marveling at the gate. And then he finally just shoves her in the back and pushes yeah. her through. <laughs> oh, he's yeah, probably thinking to himself, oh, God, another scientist. What they stick me with. Yeah, yeah, right. definitely. Well, he just shows you his impatience with with scientific inquiry and, and uh, you know, curiosity. He's just like, whatever, let's go. Right, so um, – they get through, find themselves in this chamber of some sort. They're met by armed men. And then, of course, Daniel Jackson meets them along with Scara. We find out that Jackson's got a wife, although we don't find out right away that she's his wife. We certainly see that he's got a woman. And she wants everybody on this team to know <laughs> that he's hers, hmm. which I found interesting. <laughs> but... Carter sees the control system. I, I don't even know what. I, I think we end up having a name for it, but I forget what it is. You know, but that big circle that they punch in the chevrons and then push the the button in the middle. Yeah, the big red button. Yeah, exactly. And and that's where we get the line where she says, "It took us fifteen years and three supercomputers to MacGyver a system for the gate on Earth." Yeah. But then this is the point where Daniel assures him, "Ra didn't come through our gate." Okay, well, he came from somewhere. Obviously, there's got to be more gates. And the sandstorm precludes him from showing Jack that room right away. But it does give us a chance to establish the show's got the light touch, right. as if we didn't know that already. They're at dinner that night. And, you know, that, that scene where Scar offers Jack his lighter back, which is obviously something that, that was pretty meaningful from the movie and tells him, no, it's yours. But Carter, uh, it, it's just like she's like a little kid in the candy store. She's got this smile on her face. She's looking around wide-eyed, almost giddy. And it's almost as if she probably thought she would never be in this position, which is to, of course, be on another planet. Yeah, you're on another planet in space, right? Yeah, it's yeah. Like, how does that not, you know, <laughs> kind of get your juices going, right? Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, once the the news comes across that the sandstorm has abated, Jackson takes them to that room and he tells them point blank, the aliens could have come from anywhere. And and one of the cool things that comes out of this is, you know, look, obviously there are a gazillion shows on the History Channel about ancient aliens and who built the pyramids and all of that. And, and, and I think it's kind of cool the way they address this in the Stargate universe because, yeah. because of course, we see the pyramids on Abydos and we assume that the people on Abydos came to Earth and either built them on Earth or taught Right, Earth but it's Earth. the other way around, right? Well, we don't know that. I thought they'd... Yeah, that was actually the part that kind of confused me because it seemed like they were saying that these, you know, quote unquote gods went to Earth and then like adopted that culture, you know, to to then pretend to be gods of that culture. Well, they did say that. And I guess I always, you know, was a little, I don't want to say confused. I mean, I understood what they were saying. I just wondered whether that was correct or not. And I guess it's been so long since I saw the the entire series, whether or not that was actually answered. Of course, on the one hand, it would explain why we have humans on Abydos and right. not some other alien race. Yeah. So they, that, that, you're, you're probably right there. That's uh, actually, I'm not sure. Well, yeah. you, you probably are. So okay. we'll, we'll 
All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, suddenly the Stargate activates, and we see those same helmeted soldiers come through wreaking havoc, take Daniel's wife, Skara, and, and as it turns out, they took pretty much the whole village or so it would seem. They key in new coordinates, which we assume are not Earth, and then leave through what we will find out that the residents refer to the gate as the Shapa Eye. And I have no way of knowing how to spell that. <laughs> well, and this uh, scene has confirmed what we suspected before, is that the uh, snake guys, uh, Freud, anyone, by the way, are on a mission to capture attractive women, which it could very well devolve into a B-movie plot at this point. Well, of course. And, well, what we do find out is that Ra was the sun god who ruled the day, Apophis was the serpent god who ruled the night and that they were rivals. And we assume then Ra died in the explosion, which basically opens up the universe to Apophis. And, and that's pretty much what we see through a lot of the series is is trying to track down and eliminate Apophis. But he's right. a he's a tricky bastard. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, well he's this takes... A, he's, he's a jerk, man. Exactly. Right, he's, so, it doesn't seem like he's even the one that's like necessarily super in control, though. You know, like the his quote-unquote queen here. Uh, it seems like she kind of might be running the show, right? Well, it could be. I don't know. But also... Because you keep saying assume with talking about Ra and the fact that they mentioned probably like three, maybe even four times, they said, well, he's you know like kind of trying to reassure themselves that Ra was dead. I am coming to the assumption that Ra is not dead. Okay. And that uh, he finds his way onto the show and maybe even joins up with the team. Like, uh, you know, what's his name? Teal. 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 Yeah. So right. I don't know. I'm just right. Well, well at, at the end here, Daniel tells his people to bury the gate after they leave so that no one can ever come through. And then he tells them, you know, I, it sounds like leave it buried for a year. Yeah. And then and open it up. Probably somewhere near like what would be probably the season ender, the finale for the season's show. Um, <laughs> open up on that day. Yeah. Right. All right so this is the end of part one. Uh, the team returns to Earth. Now, we find that the gate's got a titanium iris to prevent unauthorized entries, and we find out they've got all kinds of secret codes that if, if you want to come through and, and all of that. But one of the things that comes out a couple of times is th this idea of not having a home to go to. And, uh, you know, ironically, Daniel goes home with Jack, who you wouldn't think uh, would want Jack's in there. But O'Neill's got a home, but it, it, it's kind of empty. Obviously, his wife's gone, his son's dead, and, and again, we don't find out why, and, and that's certainly one of the mysteries. I mean, you do find out, but you know that, that whole dialogue exchange that he has with Jackson where he says that, that I think my wife has forgiven me. I can't forgive myself, though sometimes I can forget. So obviously, mm. whatever it is, he blames himself sure. for all right. That sounds um, it was pretty bad. Yeah. Well, I'll just. Okay. I mean, I'll tell you off air if you, <laughs> you want to know. <laughs> all right. So we cut to Apophis's planet and yeah. we see all the captured women in white dress, almost like a harem. Surprisingly, yeah. as you mentioned, they're all attractive. Yeah. Of course. The female sergeant is taken first to Apophis 
you could be the vessel for my future queen. And of course, we don't exactly still know at this point what that means. And then we find out that. Well, they did say previously how they, you know, Rod took on human vessels, right? Exactly. It was still kind of shocking to see that. What was wrong with that girl as a vessel? Like the queen well, had a vessel, right? Okay. So what you find out, and, and we find out later that Teal'c has one as well. Yeah. Okay. And he mentions that if, you know, I, I take it out, I'm going to die. Now, y- y- we don't know necessarily, is he going to die immediately? Does he mean he'll die eventually? Yeah, I yeah. think he just meant that he would die eventually, right? That he would not, he would no longer be Im- immortal. Right. And I mean, he says in perfect health and long life. Yeah. Whatever that means exactly. But I, I think what we come to find out is the the woman that's the host, uh, I-, I believe that maybe she's dying. I-, I-, I can't remember if we find that out or not. But there's okay. some reason that the snake, the future queen, needs a new host, and that's what Apophis is looking for. Okay. All right. So, um, and and uh, yeah, I, I have the word here, disgusting. But <laughs> yeah, it is pretty disgusting. It, so, but while we're at, because Teal'c is like everyone else seems to be kind of like under the control of the larvae or whatever, but Teal'c. He goes off. Right? He he can make his own choices. Right now, he is a Jaffa, um, which I, I guess kind of loosely defined. He was at, the bad guy in Aladdin. Uh, what's that? He was the bad guy in Aladdin. Uh, yeah, okay, uh, yeah, Jafar was the bad guy. But yeah, oh, right. Okay, had I look? I don't have kids. I haven't seen. Have Aladdin. you not seen Aladdin? I have not. No, dude. I was only like twenty when that came out. Like I can't believe. It. Like, dude. That's that's like that's like a cultural history like that's culturally significant movie you should you should go definitely see have you seen the little mermaid bits and pieces just because uh, like my little nieces would put it on and it dude, would, these, I know I, <laughs> all right, well well one of the things I I want to bring out but and again you know some people might want to go on and and watch the series so I don't want to spoil too much but you, you do learn that the host has a symbiotic and, and a psychic connection with the snake. So I'll just leave right. it at that. You know, your, well, your question as to why Teal seems to be able to make independent decisions is certainly a good one. Oh, thank you. One of the things we learn once we're back on Earth is that General Hammond has been ordered to put together nine covert teams that will be designated SG-1 through 9. Jack's team, obviously, will be SG-1 and will comprise Carter Jackson, who's been ordered to stay but talks his way onto the team, along with Kowalski, who's going to head SG-2. Now, his buddy, Ferretti, is still unconscious, but he remembers the symbols so that he can tell them how to get to where Ra right. or Which Apophis is a pretty went. Nice trick that he was able to, you know, remember that. That's pretty uh, observant of him, you know. Right now, they were given twenty four hours before the iris gets permanently locked. Which I'm thinking, like, all right, they're going through a stargate to a planet unknown, and if you're not back in twenty four hours, <laughs> you're on your own. That seems like a uh, an unreasonable time constraint. I, I thought so as well. But here's also what I'm thinking, because of the relativity of time, that possible that 24 hours on Earth could be 
10 years on another planet, right? Well, it could be. They didn't really get into that, but you know, there you know, that that is a thing. Yeah, yeah. Now, one of the interesting things the way this series played out, Sheree is the next one chosen as a possible vessel, and the first time the episode aired, which was on Showtime, viewers saw full frontal nudity when her dress was removed. Now, oh. did, did you see it on no, Netflix? Stupid. Actually, it wasn't on Netflix. It was on Amazon. Oh, okay. And stupid Amazon. Since then, they you know, cut that scene out. They re-edited right. it. Now, I have the DVD set. Why would they set. do that? Because it's, it's still like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, like why would they need to edit Like, Because it's not on like network television or anything. Yeah, I, I don't know. But, but after that, they... They cut that out. Now, like I said, I have the DVD set, and it's on the DVD set. Of course, that hmm. begs the question, okay, if they were going to do that, why'd they do it with her and not the female sergeant? Maybe oh, they the, didn't do it with the other girl? Yeah. Maybe the female yeah. sergeant had it in her contract that no yeah. front. I mean, seriously. I, yeah, I, no, I, 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 who knows? But I know. her dress is removed. Does she please you, my lord? Ra uh, Apophis asks the snake, which uh, <laughs> leaves its old host and then burrows into Sheree. Apophis looks relieved. Teal'c, not so much. And that's the other thing we, we see in a, almost every scene that Teal'c is in. He's got this look on his face like, yeah. this ain't right. Right. And that's curious. Y- you know, we don't necessarily learn for a while why he thinks that, but but it does become clear wh- yeah. why he's become somewhat disillusioned. Right, but they they definitely set that up, like you know, wordlessly, uh, which is which I like. I appreciate that. You know, no dialogue, no voiceover, but they establish that this guy is not on board with uh, what's going on and everything. So yeah, I don't think we have any voiceovers. No, yeah, because it's a good show. There you go. It, it can you know transmit information. Without needing dialogue. Okay. All right. Well, they, you know, they encounter this group of priests. <laughs> on their foreheads, they have the same symbol, or at least it seems to be, uh, that Teal'c has on his. Right. And, and they, you know, I wonder if, like, the sparrows on Game of Thrones got that from Stargate, right? Oh, you know what? I was thinking that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not, like, I don't think that's a thing in the books. That might be wrong, of course. But I don't know if the books say anything about the sparrows having markings in their forehead but uh yeah you know, when i saw this i'm like hey i so, know that sign yeah well they take the team into town where they're being entertained treated like gods and the next thing you know apophis and sheree enter the room where he introduces her as your queen and of course daniel jumps up and gets zapped immediately and then that goes back to that whole uh conflict that he has with o'neill about you know a, a soldier wouldn't do that you understand the emotions, but that that's simply something that, that just can't happen. Right. Okay. All right. Well, speaking of things that can't happen, we're back at Cheyenne Mountain. The general learns the team's only got two hours left. And, and I think you would argue that, well, that's because it's a good show. They don't give us the stupid countdown. Yeah. Right, right. You know, that they I, take and, us. And I did, I did notice that and, and appreciate that. That, you know, they don't have the timer kind of, woo, just made it. Right. And and now we've got that conflict in that Jack has to be about the mission 
and the overall success of it, whereas Daniel Jackson is only concerned about saving Sheree. And 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 again, you get that. And that's sure. I think why this this scene is so poignant, because it's his wife. And yeah. you know, I, I think deep down O'Neill recognizes that, having lost his own wife, and 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 again, there are circumstances involved there. But But I, I think he you know, but he 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 you know out, outwardly recognized that because he says, Hey, you know, we'll get him back, right? Like we'll, Sure. Yeah, you know, that that's that's part of what we're gonna do here is to is to get back um you know, those people. Right. But we see them all, you know, they're they're imprisoned in this little gate. Next thing you see, Scara is chosen as one of the ones to be taken. And, of course, you know, Jack's concerned about that. But then, you know, it's like that, that confrontation. Well, it's not really even a confrontation, that acknowledgement with Teal'c where he says, I can save these people. Help me. And then all of a sudden, Teal'c takes that staff weapon, which is perhaps one of the coolest weapons I've seen in quite a while. Yeah. And they blast their way out. They're very phallic people. Yes, yeah. they are. Like yeah. it's <laughs> right. But you know, now that Teal staffs and <laughs> right. all kinds. But but now that Teal has turned on his own, he tells Jack, "I have nowhere to go." You know, we're, and we're back to that that thematic idea as well. Hey, you come with us, buddy. Well, that's exactly. And okay, so we get a reveal. He he reveals that he's a Jaffa bred to serve, has an infant Gaould which is, uh, I believe it's G-O-A apostrophe U-L-D, which again, I think Google Docs knows the correct spelling. <laughs> nice. He's carried it since he was a child. All Jaffa carry one. And and we find out, you know, why. But he says to Jack, the boy you seek is no longer who he was. And of course, he's referring to Skara basically telling Jack, give it up. Right. Even if you get him, he's not going to be the boy you knew. So yeah. anyway, all right. Well, we'll, we'll yank that little lobster out of him, we'll be okay, right? Oh, right, exactly. Now, uh, we're introduced to the ring transporter system. I think we just see that once, which is pretty ah, cool. We see that, that was really cool. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Uh, the battle comes down to whether or not SG-1 can gain control of the gate punch in the coordinates and return home during their ever decreasing window. And as we said, it was good that they didn't put a stupid clock out there, you know, right. and that they get through with like two seconds to go. It's now free for them to use because Apophis has left. Jackson and Carter punch in the chevrons. The deadline's been reached. They're not back. And the general's got a decision to make. And, and he's just ready to give the order to seal the gate. <laughs> and I guess you could argue that, well, okay, they didn't have the digital clock up yeah, there. But, yeah, it's close. But at least they didn't have the actual clock. Kind of yeah, thing, yeah. So, so we, we learn also that what they're doing here, you know, what, one of the problems that I guess any science fiction show deals with and, and has to come to terms with at some point is how do you explain the science? So right. they explain basically what they're doing is establishing a wormhole between point A and point B in the universe. And at this point, that's all we need. Sure. Yeah. I'm like O'Neill. Uh, whatever. I don't need yeah. to know. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and if someone should try to actually explain the science like O'Neill, we would just be like, eh. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So they bring back refugees from the planet. 
and we get back, everybody's safe. But now, obviously, the refugees present a problem. Now, on the one hand, they are human. But we also learn Kowalski has a gold baby in him. Yeah, went right into his ear, man. Like, I didn't even know they could do that. Exactly. Uh, so we've got that and issue. How does that work? It's going to work its way down to his abdomen? I guess. stay in his head? It's just like, like, how does it even get from your ear to your abdomen? Like, it's just really confusing. And I'm not sure I thought about this when I watched it the first time, but what about all your internal organs? What happened to them? Yeah, right. So, well, Sheree and Skara are still out there. Jack wants Teal'c to join SG-1 and, of course, General Hammond. Well, that's not up to me. Or he might say it's not up to you. And I think we you know, can read between the lines. It's probably not up to him either. Right. So we're left with SG-1 comprised of O'Neill, Carter, Jackson, and Teal'c, uh, that they're going to be exploring a seemingly infinite number of stargates and the planets to which they lead. And as you alluded to, when you've got 10 seasons, 214 episodes, you better have a few planets to go to. Sure. Are they going to rescue Sheree and, and Skara? You know, that idea that Jack keeps losing people that he cares about, his son, his wife, and now this this boy. And the fact that Teal'c seems genuinely surprised at Jack's offer to join SG-1, I, I really thought was interesting. But, you know, as a pilot, and, and you might argue, well, that they took two episodes to do it. Well, that's okay. Plenty of pilots these days uh, are two episodes. We didn't mention yeah, it. By the way, it seems like all the ones you picked were like super long double episodes. I you know, I was, I was going to mention that, I don't think we mentioned it at the time, but the Alias Pilot, while it wasn't a double episode, it was like an episode and a half. Yep, in the 4400. Oh, was that? Oh, you're right. That was yep. two episodes. Yeah. Yep. So you're like sneaking around the back way here, getting extra episode in for the ones you chose. Yeah, good point. I didn't do that on purpose. Mm-hmm. Or, or did I? <laughs> it's okay. When it's a show like this, I don't mind because it was, uh, like I said, it's, it's even after an hour and a half, you're still like, man, that went by pretty quickly. Yeah. And, and the thing that will be so cool as you move forward, and look, I, I, I seriously doubt you're going to watch any more of this now just because you don't have the time. But if it's a show that you decide to take on, you know, it, as you might expect, it, it's all about relationship building over the next few episodes. Yes, they go through the gate. Yes, they go to other worlds. Yes, they're looking for all this stuff. But it's really about the four of them becoming first a team and then to a certain extent a family. Yeah, it was a good show. I, I liked it. Yeah, so. it was a good show. I see why, it, you know, like it, it, uh, it has – Every, it really kind of did everything a pilot is supposed to do, which, I, you know, you said, like, Alias being the best pilot ever. I mean, if you look at it just as a pilot pilot, um, which is, you know, establishing basic relationships, setting up the basic, I guess, quote-unquote mythology or the, the structure around which the show will be able to work, you know, um, I think SG-1 just really, you know, knocked it out of the park. Yeah. Well, that's – so did you give it an A? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I did too. You know, I at first I started thinking like, well, I'll give it an A minus and I'm thinking like, well, what am I grading it down on? Yeah. <laughs> what was bad except for, you know, like some of the there there were some kind of tropey things here and there, you know, like the the grizzled warrior with the heart of gold and everything like that and the, you know, 
the nerdy scientist who is, you know, I mean, actually, I guess you figure if you're like kind of a nerd and you get like a, you know, an attractive woman to be your wife like that, that you're going to be emotional about sure. her. You know? Sure. <laughs> but so, but, but really there's, there's nothing to, to, to really, you know, the acting was good. The production values were excellent. There's yeah. nothing to grade it down on. You're right. Right. Now, one of the things that, that really gave me hope and, and and when I say that, obviously this came as a result of the feature film. So when you take a feature film that seemed to have a resolution, how the heck are you going to get one, two, three, let alone 10 seasons worth of material out of that? And the fact that they did such a great job of that gives me hope for Westworld, which obviously we've, we've said we're, we're going to... Attack in, in the uh, fall, right. and I rewatched Westworld over the weekend. It'd been a long, long time since I've seen the film. D- have you seen it? I, I, I mean, like again, when I was a kid, I saw it. It was like on television, uh, right? So. And and that's for me. It was so long ago that it was essentially seeing it for the first time. And that said, and we'll talk more about this as we get closer. It's not a great film, but it does but have a great. In it, it does have a great concept. Right. And from what I understand, the series is really just kind of using it as a jumping off point. Sure. Right. Because you, you can't, yeah, you can't just work within the constraints, as you said, of the film itself, because the film is, was created to be done in, you know, an hour and a half, two hours. Um, so you, you need some bigger, you know, take that concept, but it's like Stargate did. Okay. Well, there's more than just the one Stargate. They're all over the place. So we can have you know, adventures for, you know, countless episodes to go instead of just the one central conflict. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that, you know, watching the movie and, you know, it was fun watching it, but uh, it just really get, got me psyched to, uh, you know, see this this show well, in the fall. Well, the and, promos and, for it are, are getting me psyched because they, they look really, really cool. Well, yeah, and, and the other thing, just podcasting a show that's airing as we're talking about it you know and, yeah. and i know that which we haven't well we, yeah we did but even like lost girl like when we started with it we were going back over episodes that had already shown right but but that like you said though that once we got to season three we were doing it as it aired sure but and, we've and, never we've never been like the ground floor well and, right. and i guess that kind of runs in conflict with the uh Re- premise of our podcast sci-fi tv rewatch well well we'll, we'll, we'll watch each episode twice there you go there you go see we'll watch right. it and then we'll rewatch it and we're still good <laughs> all right see that that's what happens when you put two smart guys yeah. behind microphones right and figure that stuff out all right anything <laughs> else you want to say about stargate no oh, this is one thing like because i i know you've never seen like the penguins of madagascar or anything but there's this group of penguins and they're like a kind of militaristic unit, obviously to a you know comic effect. But the uh, the second in charge guy, his name is Kowalski. Ah, oh. which I didn't get that until like now. Obviously, I I didn't understand what that. But they, I th- I'm pretty sure they totally got that from you know Stargate. All right, nice. So its influence has spread throughout far and wide. All right, and. As we said earlier, it looks like it's coming back in the feature, f- in the feature film world. So, you know, cool. we'll see. We'll, we'll keep everybody posted on that. All right.
All right, now, Wayne, before we sign out, I was, did, did you get the card I sent you? Nope. Okay, because you know what today is, right? Uh, June 28th. This is, to the day, our four-year anniversary really? of oh. doing this podcast. You forgot. <laughs> I did forget. Well, to be fair, it's also uh, the, the, my wife's and my first date. Like really day as well yeah um you're equating that with well i'm just saying that that time that, takes that's like a no-win question by the way <laughs> yeah you're not gonna get me to say anything on the air it's gonna get me in trouble later uh, not, not today at least <laughs> well you know it's it's i'll tell you four years has gone by quickly I know, and, it's four uh, years seriously i know i wow. know so uh here's to another four years yeah cheers man all right well, we want to thank you guys for joining us tonight because, seriously, without you guys listening to us, we would not have made it four years. And, and truthfully, we appreciate it. We don't take you for granted. And as we always say, we'd love to hear from you. Follow-ups about Dark Angel, Charlie Jade, Hemlock Grove, 4400, Life on Mars, <laughs> Alias, Stargate, anything else you think we should be watching. Actually, while you're making that list, because I'm just throwing this in there because, as you know, um, I went back and rewatched Life on Mars, which was awesome. And I'm like, so there was a, a spinoff called Ashes to Ashes, right? And you uh, set me up with uh, Daily Motion, which is great for the first six episodes. And then like the remaining 18, there's only like six of the remaining 18 there. So if anyone out there knows how I can, you know, legally watch Ashes to Ashes, because like even the DVD, they just have Region 2 DVDs. They never published it in the u.s so it's just like this kind of i mean it's not super frustrating as if i can always just say whatever but it was a good you know from what i saw of ashes to ashes that was good too so anyone has any ideas let me know absolutely all right cool all right well we'd like to encourage you to join the facebook group if you're already a member spread the word emails to sci-fi tv rewatch at gmail.com or voicemails via SpeakPipe, which you can access through the website we'll be back next week to discuss the librarians but until then, hey, Dave, no Kleenex boxes, please. Otherwise, we'll assume the worst and send a bomb through.